everybody. Welcome to the EquipCast. My name is Jim Jansen, and I am your host. And I have such a hopeful conversation for you. If you have, well, if you know anybody who has stopped the practice of the faith, a friend, a sibling, son, daughter, grandchild, you're going to love this conversation. I sit down uh, with Andre Rainier of Catholic Christian Outreach of Canada. Andre has literally seen thousands of people give themselves to the Lord and experience conversion. And he talks about how we can do that. He says, number one, we've got to give a clear and a simple invitation to follow the Lord, a clear and simple invitation to embrace the gospel. He talks about the importance of decision. He shares the dynamics of conversion, how the intellectual assent isn't enough. He talks about how marriage is an icon, gives a beautiful example of Pope Benedict, how Pope Benedict actually shares the gospel, invites people how to respond to the gospel. It's a fantastic conversation. Uh, Andre has lived this as a missionary and as a family man for years. You're going to love today's conversation. Take a listen. Welcome to the EquipCast for the Archdiocese of Omaha, designed to help leaders to transform their cultures, to embody the pastoral vision, to be one church, encountering Jesus, equipping disciples, and living mercy. All right, everybody, it is my great privilege to introduce uh, to you someone who I actually, truth be told, Andre and I just met. We've had many mutual friends who've been trying to connect us, and now, praise God, we get the opportunity to connect and um, really get to have a, a conversation today. Andre Rainier, welcome to the EquipCast. It's great to be here. It really is. Technology's awesome because... Yeah, we, maybe we haven't met, but we're meeting now. I'm in Canada, and you're not. <laughs> you're in Omaha, aren't you? I am. I am. Yep, here in Nebraska. So, Andre, we always like to start the EquipCast just by giving people an opportunity to just give like the short 60-second, two-minute, whatever version of their testimony. So tell us a little bit about your story. How did you first encounter Christ? Give us a glimpse into your journey of faith. Okay, so... I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and I was a spiritual kid inside. Like, I always had this love, this natural kind of grace to love God and desire Him, but I didn't live that. Hmm. I was pretty outgoing, athletic, and so I, I loved to live life. I had lots of friends, partied a lot, and so what was happening inside didn't kind of express itself outwardly. When I finished high school, I basically, like all my friends, just walked away from the church. Yeah. We didn't think about it. We just kind of stopped. Yeah. But about three years after, uh, there was a number of things that happened. I wasn't in this great search of God, but you know, I found out very quickly that he was searching for me. <laughs> yes. I was up in Fort McMurray, Alberta. You wouldn't know where it is. It's way, way up in northern Alberta in Canada. And I decided that, you know what, I want to go to Mass. Back then, we didn't have a Google search. We had to go to a phone book. <laughs> I looked it up, and it happened to be where I was living, because I had just arrived there. It was like a block away. So I went to the parish on Sunday, and I remember sitting down, and I can't remember the exact point during Mass, but at one point... 
it was like heaven opened up to me. Mm. It was like, I wouldn't say a beam of light, but the presence of God kind of entered into every one of my cells. Like I just was like fully, fully alive. I, I felt loved. I felt moved spiritually. Like at the time, I didn't know what was going on. I knew something that I felt in love instantly. Yeah. Wow. And I remember leaving the, the church that day and getting into my car. And the first thing I did is I began to sing the old songs I used to know growing up, you know, like, make me a channel of your peace, uh, you know. <laughs> yes, so no, we are Christians, but I could only sing. Wow. Well, that is a moment of my conversion because I did a 180 turn. But the interesting thing is I thought I was the only Catholic that experienced this for the next five years. Yeah. Wow. And it was really God's plan that I was on my own because I had to kind of learn by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, what it meant to be converted, what it, what it meant to live a life that was faithful and pursuing God and holiness. So it was, it was an interesting time, but it was a transformative time. So it was pretty extraordinary encounter. Yeah. Because I went into that church, I could say lost and I came out found. I was dead, but I came out alive. I was blind, but now I see. Wow. It was quite dramatic. It was quite dramatic. Wow. And that that was before you had any community around you. I mean, that's a powerful part of the story for me because so often that's like this essential element to sustaining those of us when we have a moment of an encounter to actually making it a real conversion of life. How did that happen? Because your day job, your work with Catholic Christian Outreach, CCO, has helped not only spark encounter, but then has helped that kind of accompaniment and communal maturing for individuals. What happened in between there? Because you're offering that gift that wasn't a part of your own journey. Well, actually, I think that is exactly why I was alone, mm. is that I know now the other side. Yeah. I know now by experience what conversion looks like, but I also know by experience what what is the Holy Spirit inviting us to do, you know, after our post-conversion. Mm. What is the struggle of prayer life? You know, where is the struggle of your prayer life? Why should you read the scriptures? Why should you be involved in your parish based on my experience? Those are the things that were my lifeline. Yeah. It's easy when you're around a bunch of people, you know, because they're the role models around you kind of saying, come on, come along with me. But I was, these are all kind of decisions I had to make on my own. So much of CCO is what we do is based on principles mm -hmm. rather than, you know, just, hey, what I learned and these are good ideas, but they're based on even conversion has guiding principles that navigate conversion. Mm -hmm. Well, because I kind of learned them and experienced them in my conversion and in the five years after. One of the things that really had an impact on me, I wrestled for the University of Saskatchewan and I was a pretty good wrestler. And a number of my teammates, good friends of mine, were evangelical Christians. And they invited me to their Friday night college and career. And what I saw there... Mm -hmm really got me thinking and seeing what is missing in my Catholic community. Yeah, yeah. Like what I yeah. saw when I went there, one was a lot of people, a lot of young people. Mm -hmm. I'd never seen that before. Remember, this is in the 80s. <laughs> this isn't, you know, 
World Youth Day hadn't even, you know, really started yet. And this is a time up in Canada where there's a mass exodus. Yeah. So there's no real apostolates in these communities like Focus or CCO or Net Ministry. There was none of that. Yeah. So I went to these events and what I saw was that they loved Jesus. Like Jesus seemed to be very personal to them. And as they were speaking, it made sense to me because it was what I was experiencing. Mm -hmm. Like Jesus was somebody that I was relating to, some that I knew that he was with me. And again, I didn't really have words to it, but I, I knew that was my experience. But the second thing that I experienced there was they were very evangelical in their disposition. I mean, not only did they know Jesus, they wanted to make him known. Yeah. Yes. So all of these young people were involved in campus ministry. They were evangelizing their family members. They were going overseas and doing mission, meaning they wanted the world to know Jesus. And that also rung true to me because what I realized into my conversion was that my family, who I thought was practicing, was clear that they weren't. Yeah. I remember my dad. This is a major moment of pain for me. I was talking to my dad about the faith and he goes, there is no hell and there is no heaven. Mm. And my dad is saying this. Mm. So I knew that based on you know the conversations I was having with them, that especially my brothers and sisters, that they were, I have a term for it now, they were unevangelized. Yeah. So those yeah. two experiences basically oriented my thinking and, and what I felt needed to happen. But the third thing that really had a huge impact on me was that, you know, as I was talking to these young evangelical Christians, I'd find out very quickly, they'd say that, you know, I was Catholic once, but now I know Jesus. Uh, yeah. And I, I want to, I want to drop to my knees and, and beg them to come back. Mm hmm you know, come back to the church. We need your evangelical zeal. We need your love for Jesus. We need your confidence in your faith. But then I thought, where would I take them? To my parish? Ouch. Yeah. What they were experiencing, there was no comparison. They were experiencing a dynamic community. I was experiencing what I would describe as a dying community. Yeah. And so that experience kind of inspired me to know as we started CCO, these would be really important principles that would guide the movement. It became a calling. Yeah, it did. Wow. Andre, I think so many of our listeners know somebody who is close to them who stopped the practice of the faith. I mean, it really is a pandemic across the world. You know, people who have stories like ours are like, eh, well, college didn't go so well. I kind of wandered away. I mean, that's way more the norm than it is the exception. You point out in your book, Clear and Simple, that most of the time, it's not that we did anything wrong. That mission was something we didn't know how to do. What have we been missing? I mean, that's a really good question. And I actually went back to my book and I read it again and it reminded me, oh, I said that? Oh, that was awesome. <laughs> that I'm thinking of my parents' generation. And I think it's also true in our generation, but it's not that they had a bad intention or they didn't care that the faith would be passed on to their children. They actually desired it. But the only thing they knew was to impose the faith upon us. And it sounds negative, but in a way, that's what they did. They said, you have to go to church on Sunday. You have to believe. You can't do that. Right. So it was kind of like we were told what to do. 
you know, liturgy and the responsibility, the faith is not life-giving if you don't have faith. If you don't have a dynamic relationship with Jesus that's real and transformative, these mean nothing to us. Yeah. I mean, say that again. It's not that the power of the liturgy depends on someone being a disciple. Well, it sure does. I mean, some people might have the grace to enjoy, you know, to sit in liturgy and just observe the beauty of it. But I was a very active kid. I just wanted to be playing on the soccer field. Mm -hmm. So what changes everything is a relationship with Jesus, because now you see the mystery kind of unfolding and choosing to live a life of faith as a young person. It seems to go against what everyone else is doing. So why would I want to do it if I'm not inspired from within? If the Holy Spirit isn't calling me, Mm -hmm. like in Romans 8, it talks about the Holy Spirit is the one that leads and guides. Yeah. It reveals, it opens up. So I guess what my parents or what parents tend not to be able to do, and I would say this is pretty common right across the board, is not that we don't have the right intention. I don't think we know how to pose the faith in a way that it becomes compelling and people are invited to respond to it. Yeah. So we just impose it. We give them information. And the more information you know, the better. (laughs) Right. And there's some truth to that, but it falls short, you know? Yeah. There's a saying, you can't love what you don't know. So if you know a bunch, you'll be able to love more. That is not true because there's a lot of people that know a lot about the faith, but aren't loving the faith. Hmm. knowledge is important, but the person on the right-hand side of Jesus when he died didn't know a lot. Hmm. You're talking about the good thief. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But he loved and he trusted. Yeah. And, you know, there's stories upon stories of people, like I didn't know a lot when I had my conversion. It was pure grace. It was God came. I desired it. I, I leaned in. But I would say I was pretty close to being, well, ignorant of the faith. I didn't know a lot about what it meant to be Catholic. But God met me there and changed absolutely everything. Yeah. Andre, I found your book, Clear and Simple, I found it to be so hopeful. I mean, just that effective evangelization is possible, that it's not outside of the grasp or the influence of all of us just kind of ordinary, everyday Catholics, you introduce this concept of kind of like intentional spiritual conversations. Can you kind of break that open and introduce that for people here in the conversation? Well, let's be in a coffee shop with a friend, somebody that we know, we trust, you know, and they are aware of our faith and they're not rejecting it. They're they're open. They're open to a conversation. What happens there? And so intentional spiritual conversations is that, I mean, there's a number of principles, but the first thing that I think we have to know is that the person I'm talking to, and this is why it's hopeful, they were created for what I have to share with them. Meaning the message of the gospel, Jesus, the church, is what people were created for. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a matter of, you know, God uses us to kind of help them see with the help of the Holy Spirit, see what they were created for. So that's the hope is coming from is that these people are created for this. Yeah. Now, potential spiritual conversations is the most important thing in that coffee shop is that I am more interested in where they are spiritually than what I know about the faith. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, if I can stop you there, like one... What I have to offer them is a gift. They're made for it. I'm not imposing it. And my listening to them and attending to their journey 
that also matters more than whatever I think I want to say to them, because the Lord has something to say to them, hopefully through me, that fits where they're at right now. Yes, because where they are spiritually, what they know, what they don't know, how they're feeling, their experiences matters. Okay, I'll give you an example. You know, in the coffee shop, I said, you know, I tried Mm. when I was in college and I went through RCIA and I got really caught up in it. And I was really, you know, I read a lot. My parents really supported it. I read all these books, but I still felt it was far away. And I felt like I knew a lot, but I didn't experience a lot. Mm. It's almost like conversion has eluded me. Well, this is not the time where I'm going to say, well, you know, here's a great book to read. (laughs) Yeah. Or you know what I know? Because they probably know all that stuff. Yeah. So what I'm hearing from them is that they've tried it, but it's kind of left them wanting. Yeah, there was a disappointment there. Yeah. And so then I would ask a deeper question. I'd say, so what do you think you were looking for? What do you think didn't happen? Mm. And then we find out what's really going on in them. And they say, well, everyone around me had this profound conversion and I didn't. Mm -hmm. I'm giving an example. No, but that's real. Yeah. When we take the time to listen, that's where people's hearts and minds are at. Yeah. I'm asking the questions and they say, well, I don't believe that Jesus is God. Well, I'm going to treat them different than if they did believe in God. Mm -hmm. Or if someone says, I don't think God loves me, I'm going to treat them a little different than I believe God loves me, but I've never experienced it. So the more I know about where they are spiritually, the more I'm able to adapt the message to them. One of the things that I thought was super helpful, you talk about when people get an opportunity where they kind of hear the gospel, they hear an invitation. Oftentimes, there's some things that are preventing them from giving a yes or a full yes to the Lord. What are some of those things? Okay, let's go back to kind of the original story is that once I know where they are kind of spiritually and I'm aware of what they know and what they don't know, then I'm able to see where that is, where the barrier is. I don't say, well, you know what? You're closed hearted. No, they're saying I'm bitter now. I'm angry or... Mm -hmm. I'd rather do this and that. So they're telling us already the barriers. So there are a thousand barriers, but if we ask them the questions, then they self-describe their barrier. Yeah. Oh, that's great. If we just listen and we ask good questions, they tell us what's in the way. Exactly. I have to be led by curiosity rather than imposing. Mm -hmm. I was talking to somebody, RCA is an awesome program, but they went through the RCA program And they said it was a great experience, but they never, ever believed this idea that Jesus was God. Like they always struggled with Jesus is God. Mm. And there were some other things, even miracles that was possible. Anyway, they had had all these issues. But he said the leader never knew once where I was. Mm. They just kept teaching me really good stuff. But they had no idea that I fundamentally didn't believe in a supernatural element of faith. I believed in a God, but I didn't really believe in Jesus and miracles. Yeah. But they never knew. So to me, what we need to do is say, okay, tell me what you're thinking now. And if they expose it, I don't believe Jesus is God, or I don't believe God loves me, or I don't like church or whatever it is. Well, boy, now I know the barrier that I need to deal with, help them to overcome so that they can be open. 
you know, it seems like in some ways we're talking about conversion in general. Can you help us kind of break down like what are the dynamics that are happening within the conversion process? I feel like we have to listen to the individuals. We have to kind of know, okay, where are they at? What are the obstacles, the desires, the hurts? But we also have to kind of know what's the Lord trying to do? What does conversion really look like? Can you kind of break that down for us? Like, what does conversion really look like? Well, okay. Me in the coffee shop, if I wanted to evangelize a good friend of mine, I better be clear on the gospel message, the charisma, the basic fundamental message of the gospel, meaning God loves us. Our sin separates us from God. Jesus reconciles us back to the Father, and we have to respond. I don't know if you ever heard of Father John Ricardo's book, Rescued. He talks about those elements of the gospel. We have to be clear on that. Yes. Yeah. We have to be comfortable. It almost has to be etched in our mind. We have the ultimate relationship. It's a little track on the gospel message. Well, we train our people to know the gospel message that they can share it anytime, anywhere, Mm -hmm. and they can adapt it to the people. But we actually have to know the mechanics of the gospel message. Yeah. So that's essential. And so when that person, they're saying, okay, uh, yeah, I, I don't believe Jesus God or I don't believe God loves me, then I have a doorway to to now start speaking to that. Again, if we know the message, we can adapt it to that person. Then we can start sharing kind of, okay, no, God does love and he has created a you for a relationship with him. But one reason that you might not be experiencing that is because of your kind of sin or your heart is not opening up to him. But I want you to know Jesus has come to reconcile you, that Jesus died for you, rose again for you. So the key here is, I've just said those four points, okay? Mm -hmm. And they're truths, okay? God's love, sin, and Jesus. Mm -hmm. But they're not just truth. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, those are truths that are revealed. Mm. So when I share them, it's like the Holy Spirit grabs hold of the words that I've just spoken, mm-hmm. and he is going over to that person, and it's going into their intellect, and the Holy Spirit is one that's saying, God loves you. When we simplify the message down to, you know, God's love, our sin, Jesus is God, It's a Holy Spirit that is the primary agent of evangelization that is already doing the work of evangelizing them, revealing to them the truth. So all I need to know is some basic content. Yeah, I just have to give a little testimony here because like I'm like beside myself with excitement. You know, some of our listeners know my journey. I was a missionary, sad to say, for many years before I really began to clearly and simply articulate the gospel message. You know, I loved all the pre-conversion stuff, making friends, and I loved teaching people who already loved the Lord how to go deeper. But I wasn't comfortable sharing the gospel, calling people to conversion, talking about the person of Christ. For whatever reason, the whole host of them, I wasn't comfortable there. And when I started to do it, it was amazing. Like I saw how like the power of the message did something that was way beyond my words and something happened every time. Not every time did someone like, oh my gosh, I want to get baptized. But you could see the Holy Spirit. I mean, just like you said, you can see the Holy Spirit using the words 
that basic proclamation, you know, God loves you, sin screwed it up, Jesus offers a solution. How do you want to respond? Like, you could see that changing people. It was amazing to see what would happen every single time. Yeah. By the way, you said every single time, and I would agree that it is every single time. People might not convert every single time, but the Holy Spirit works every single time. Yeah, and you could see it, yeah. When I share the message, and this is why it's really important that the message is clear and simple, we tend to want to kind of share with the people in the coffee shop everything that we know and we've learned in the last 10 years. Yeah. And we want to give them profound truths that like, it's not even important to them. If we want to bring them to conversion, what we need to do is simplify the message to what we, you and I have been talking about, the, the content of the kerygma, mm-hmm. and do it simply so that they can understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. We want them to understand what we're saying. So we want to dumb it down to them, say, God loves you. Your sin separates you from God. I'm obviously exaggerating here. Jesus reconciles you back to the Father. He's asking you to respond. Now, what they're doing is they know exactly what you're saying now. Mm -hmm. They understand it. Because if we want them to respond, and this is the next dynamic of conversion, is that we need them to kind of respond to it. Yeah. But if they're not clear on what they're being asked to respond to, if it's vague, just kind of big theology out there, then they're going, okay, yeah, how do I believe in this? I don't know. What do I do? Yeah. So we want to make it as clear and simple so that they can understand what you're saying and what you're asking of them, and then they can respond appropriately. I think this is a key. Yeah. Canada is a little different than the States. (laughs) Canada is a lot more secular. Yes. And so a lot of people are further off, but- I've seen thousands and thousands of people returning and and having this profound encounter conversion. And it really boils down to the clarity of the message. It has to be simple enough so that they can understand what you're asking and then they know how to respond appropriately. But one, one thing I want to say is we've been talking a lot about this. I know you had Michael on, Michael Hall on earlier Mm-hmm. Him and I, in our conversation about conversion, we've come up with three dynamics of conversion. As we look at it, I think it seems to be consistent, is that when you think of conversion, there are three things that are happening. Mm-hmm. There's a conversion of the intellect, the conversion of the will, and the conversion of the emotion. Wow. Can you say that again? The conversion of the intellect, conversion of the will, and conversion of emotion. But you can kind of compare it to marriage the conversion of the intellect is kind of like marriage prep Mm. you now know what it's about what you're being asked to do the conversion of the will is a marriage ceremony the vows yeah i do and then the conversion of the emotion not emotionalism is like the consummation of the marriage meaning it gets very intimate yeah and i would say that the conversion of the intellect is about 10 percent of conversion Right, right. Yeah, like you're not done just because, oh, it makes sense now. Yeah. Unfortunately, we have a lot of people in the church that they love the church because they know a lot about it. But I think the full gamut of conversion that Pope Benedict talked about, which it's a great quote, is they're kind of left in the intellect part of it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like what I know. Okay. Yeah. I would say, and by the way, this is not exact science, but 
you know, 10, 15% of kind of conversion, the grace of conversion is happening because intellect doesn't demand an action. Mm. I mean, I can know a lot and do nothing, but still know. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's, you're starting to make me uncomfortable, Andre. Yes, yes. (laughs) But that's great because it's so true. I mean, those of us who have been, I think about parents and pastors and anybody, youth ministers, anybody who's been privileged to walk with someone when they've had that first kind of intellectual conversion, it's beautiful, it's irreplaceable, but they're not done. Well, yeah, because you could know a lot and not have to do anything. But this is where the conversion of the will plays a huge part in it. I would say, again, this is not an exact science, I'm just using numbers to make the point, is like 80% of conversion happens here, or 70%, let's just say. Hmm. And that is because the will is where you put the skin in the game. You decide. It's like, okay, this is what I know. This is what I'm saying yes to. It's like, you know, when we get married, the marriage ceremony, I mean, every year we don't celebrate marriage prep or even how well our marriage is going. We celebrate the decision that we made. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. And the decision is that you allow God to do what he needs to do now. I would say, you know, it's very Marian in that she had information from the angel But then she said, let it be done according to your word. She gave full permission here. Yeah. And then she had the Magnificat. So that decision is what changes everything. I think that's where we as Catholics stop. Mm. We give intellect and we hope that that'll be good enough. I don't think we do the response well. We don't invite people to say yes. Yeah. It's almost like we lose out on this conversion the grace of conversion, the transformation that happens when Jesus come, you know, I stand door knocking and whoever opens up the door, I will come in and dine with him and and he with me. Yeah. There's that intimacy that happens when we give God permission. Yeah. I agree. I just think it's so ironic because I thought about this. I had a missionary friend who had introduced me to this idea of the golden question. It's like, ask people to make a decision for the Lord. You're like, would you like to entrust yourself to him? Do you want him to be a part of your life? Are you willing to give him the keys, whatever metaphor you want to use? And it feels in some ways countercultural to much of the way we've lived and acted as Catholics over the last decades or you know, maybe even centuries, except for it's not. Like who we really are. I mean, every Easter we stand up and we proclaim and reject Satan and claim our baptismal vows. Every Sunday, we come forward. And again, it's like the ultimate altar call. We come and we offer ourselves to the Lord and we invite him again into our hearts and not only into our hearts, into our bodies, right? When we go to communion, it's like this, again, act of the will decision. I say yes, right? Let it be done unto me. When we have the eyes to see it, this is so Catholic. It's a part of our tradition I think we've lost and we're starting to rediscover. Yeah, I would agree that people think it's more Protestant than Catholic. I would so disagree on that because we are more about the decision, the altar call, if you will, than a Protestant is. Yeah. Think about baptism. Yeah. When I get my child baptized and he says, what do you want for your child? Well, dunk him in the water. (laughs) No, you actually have to choose baptism. When we go to communion, We can't just say thank you. We have to say amen, meaning we are really very serious about the response. Yeah. In marriage, 
like at the wedding ceremony, it's not good enough for like the day I got married. If my wife, you know, she's just so in love with me and I'm in love with her and she's just taken by all the emotion. You know, we do our vows. I say yes. And then she starts crying uncontrollably. Everyone in the church at that day is crying along with her because it's so beautiful. Mm. Everyone could see that there's love in the air. Okay. But father's not going to move on until she stops crying. Yeah. Because she has to, she has to, if this is going to happen, she has to kind of decide. Yeah. It's not a marriage unless she says I do. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. I'm going to read a quote. It's, it's a really powerful quote. It's from the U.S. bishops on the National Directory of Catechesis, at, um, and it says this. It says, uh, this conversion is the acceptance of a personal relationship with Christ, sincere adherence to him. Conversion to Christ involves making a genuine commitment to him and a personal decision to follow him as a disciple, mm. meaning conversion is a decision. This is what Pope Benedict said, very strong Catholic guy. <laughs> Being Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but the encounter with an event, a person which gives life a new horizon and decisive direction, meaning it's an encounter that changes your life. Yeah. And that encounter, as the catechism says, is directed by a decision, a, a choice, meaning God does not impose. Did you know that marriage, another quote from the whole thing of marriage, the church holds that the exchange of consent between the spouses to be an indispensable element that makes the marriage. If consent is lacking, there is no marriage. Yeah. Meaning you have to say yes to a relationship. The yes cannot be a vague yes. And you can almost take that quote, right, and apply it to say, you know, if there's no consent, there is no marriage. Well, if there's no consent, you're not a disciple. Yeah. Like, you know, if you haven't said, yes, Lord, at some point, there's something missing. I fully, fully agree. And again, I'm just going to read something from Pope Benedict that proves that this decision to pray and invite Jesus into your life is not a, a Protestant reality. I think it's more Catholic than it is Protestant, meaning we as Catholics, words mean something to us. Yeah. If you want a prayer for a new home, there's a certain prayer that you have to pray. There's a prayer for absolutely everything. Mm -hmm. And we believe that prayer actually has a certain grace. So we're very, very intentional about our prayer and our decisions. But this is what Pope Benedict, this was his homily at World Youth Day in Spain. I forget what year it was, but this is his homily. Okay. Uh, tell me if this doesn't talk about what we're talking about right now, that decision that placed Jesus at the center. Okay. He says, faith starts with God who opens his heart to us and invites us to share in his own divine life. Faith does not simply provide information about who Christ is. Rather, it entails a personal relationship with Christ, a surrender of our whole person with all our understanding, with all our feelings to God's self-revelation. So Jesus' question, but who do you say that I am, is ultimately a challenge to the disciples to make a personal decision in this regard. 
And then he talks to the young people, said, dear young people, today Christ is asking you in a coffee shop this question, which is asking the same question he asked the apostles, who do you say that I am? And this is where it gets the response. He said, respond to him. So Pope Benedict is saying he wants to have a personal relationship with you. Respond to him. But someone in the crowd is going, well, how do I do that? How do I respond? Uh, obviously, that didn't happen. But he says, how you respond is by saying this to him, meaning he's telling you what to say. Wow. This is so good. Andre, I'm a nerd, and I love papal quotes on the gospel and evangelization. And I've not, I, I, at least if I've heard this one, I've forgotten it. So keep going, but I'm loving this. So what he says, he said, okay, respond to him. And our question is, how do we respond to him? And he says, say to him. And now it's quoting, now he's praying. Yeah. What Pope Benedict is doing at World Youth Day. Jesus, I know that you are the son of God who have given your life for me. I want to follow you faithfully and to be led by your word. You know me and you love me. I place my trust in you and I put my whole life in your hands. I want you to be the power and the strength in me and the joy which never leaves me. End of prayer. Wow. Oh my gosh, that's so awesome. So you can see where he provided information, the intellect. Mm -hmm. Now it's the response. And interesting enough, his homily continues now. He says, now the role of the church is to embrace this. And that's where the emotion comes in. Wow. Meaning the sacraments provide this personal, intimate encounter. Anyway, that's my that's my sermon for today. Oh, that's so beautiful. I mean, it's not a bad sermon when you're quoting Pope Benedict. Our time has just flown here, but I want to go back to something you said earlier. You, in the book, you, you talk about how marriage is an icon of conversion. The dating process, and then this decision, and then this kind of daily living out and exercising of the will as our hearts are united together, you know, the moments of consummation. Before we turned on the recorders here, you're talking about you have a new book out that talks about how you raise up disciples in a family context. I'd love to give you just a little bit just to talk about that, because again, I feel pretty confident saying I uh, know our audience really well. All of our listeners have come from families. <laughs> Many of them are leading families. Talk a little bit about how these realities, what we're talking about, they don't just manifest in coffee shops. It manifests around the dinner table. Yeah. Like I said, these are principles that guide evangelization. So they're not just, you know, and that's why if there are principles, it makes it a lot easier to practice them and they should be practiced in your home. Yeah. So for example, every one of my children, I have five children, we raised them obviously in the church and to love the church, but we raised them with the mindset that they are the ones that are going to have to choose for themselves if this is what they want. Mm. But we let them know that by making this choice for Jesus, that it's going to have a profound impact on your life. But here's how you choose him. You cry out to him and you say, Jesus, I want you to be at the center of my life. I mean, some some form yeah. of that response. Yeah. I mean, just like Pope Benedict gave people the words of how to yeah. respond. Yeah. As a dad, you're like, here's how you respond to this invitation. Yes. 
Like all my children knew that Jesus was not elusive. He was just waiting for a response. When I was raised Catholic as a kid, God was far away. I didn't know how to take the next step. Mm. My children knew if they wanted to take their faith seriously, it would be a decision away. Mm -hmm. Because when they, like with authenticity, say yes to Jesus, Jesus doesn't go, well, you're not ready. Yeah, that's the other side to it. I mean, we've been emphasizing our decision, but recognizing the Lord has done the work. He's offered himself first, and he offers himself as a free gift. And when we bring both of those together, like, no, you, he offers himself as a free gift. You don't have to clean yourself up, but you do have to let him clean you up. You have to say yes. Like the yes, just like in marriage, like I said yes in October 15th, 1988 to my wife. Okay. And for the last 34 years, I've been trying to be better and better at the yes I made 34 years ago, because that one, that yes I made in 1988 was a decisive yes. It's like, Mm -hmm. here we go. You know? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I've bounced around on that. Yes. Over the last 34 years, but the whole principle of marriage is to somehow live the yes I made on October 15th. Yeah. I, mean, I said between good times and bad times, well, it's a bad time right now, but I say yes. Mm-hmm. It's a good time. And I say yes, even more deeply, meaning I'm always trying to give myself more fully into this relationship. Mm-hmm. The same thing with God is that when I say yes, it's it's a decisive moment of change and transformation. But the rest of my Christian life is going to ask the same thing. It's like, I'm going to get some information. God is going to be calling me to something. Then I say yes to that. And then I act on it. Mm -hmm. In good times and in bad. Yeah. It's a pathway to holiness. Initial conversion is a template to ongoing conversion and holiness. Yeah. Andre, you wrote this book with your family. Yeah. You guys wrote it together. Like you're sharing this beautiful anecdote. Like you come together, you know, Sundays are like, all right, so what did we do? Like the kids, your wife wrote it with you. Do you have any like little anecdotes of fun things that you discovered about your parenting and the way the Lord aided you through that as you went through this process of writing the book? We laugh about it all the time because there are so many things that I did wrong and, you know, mistakes we made and but we're able to laugh at it because we've kind of moved beyond it. And that's a key thing in the book yeah. is saying the most important thing in a family is that you have to be able to say sorry yeah. and not forced to say sorry. But I, I tell my children, I go, you need to go to your room and you need to think about it. And then when you're ready, you come down and say sorry, because the sorry, what it does and forgiveness, what it does, it repairs relationships. A relationship never gets beyond repair. It, it's always kind of keeping it connected. Mm-hmm. And so our family never kind of lost sight of each other because we're always saying sorry to each other. So that's why we can laugh about even the, the mistakes that we made along the way. For example, I'm like really, really athletic, very serious about training. And you know, I was hoping to go to the Olympics. And so sport isn't fun to me. Mm. It's I'm intense and I'm committed. Okay. And so (laughs) we laugh about it, but I basically turned my boys off of sports. They're good athletes, but I took the joy out of sports for them. Mm. 
And I had to come and say sorry for that. But now it's kind of something we joke around about. That's not an issue in their life anymore because it's been reconciled, restored, you know? Yeah, that's beautiful. Andre, what's the name of the book? It's called Brick by Brick. It's um, something John Paul II said. He said, we'll build the city of God within the city of man, brick by brick. Oh, that's awesome. Well, we will link to that in the show notes. I just want to give you just kind of like a closing comment here. Like, what would you say to somebody who finds themselves wanting to begin a spiritual conversation with a friend or loved one? And maybe if I can offer a little spin on that, somebody who's feeling, they feel the call, they felt ill-equipped to do it, and maybe they're struggling with a little bit of self-condemnation. What would you say? Well, so much. But one is something Paul said. He said, when I'm weak, he is strong. Mm. And even in your weakness, that means you're strong. Like God will take the little pieces of crumbs that you offer. So know that you're, you don't have to be a master at this, but he is mm. He is the one that is doing the heavy lifting. So it's not about you. And it really isn't. Mm-hmm. And actually, because you're weak, you're not able, you're even stronger. He's even that much of a force. But with that said, you know, if you're feeling like you just feel ill-equipped, you can go to our website. We have a lot of uh, resources to help you equip you, but I'm sure your diocese parishes. There are books like Father Ricardo's book, and there's a lot of resources out there that can equip you. So I would say, yes, we're weak and God will use that, but take responsibility of equipping yourself mm. to be able to not impose a faith on people, but propose it by asking them good questions and then inviting them to respond. Yeah. And the Lord loves the desire, right? He loves us weak, ill-equipped as we are. He loves our desire. Yeah. And I think when we present that desire to him, he's like, all right, I will help you. Andre, thank you. Where can people go if they want to find, you mentioned your website. We'll link to it, but just for those you know who have great memories, what's, the, uh, what's your website? cco.ca. Andre, thank you. Really appreciate it. So good to have the chance to sit down and chat. You're welcome. 